0: Welcome back to the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording from my cozy mountain cabin studio here in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by beautiful, just welcoming, just, gosh... I can't express how much I love this forest. Just beautiful forest all around. Waterfalls singing to us from every direction. And once again, the katydids, tree frogs, crickets, and other little chirping creatures are rocking tonight. So before we kick it off, I want to share something really exciting with you. Uh, And this is essentially a word from our sponsor, Uh, My company, Phisonics, phisonics phisonics.com, P-H-I-S-O-N-I-C-S.com. I I make sound immersion systems, but I also teach a lot of courses. And lately I've been teaching uh, a great many online courses. And we do it through Skype or Google Google Hangouts or uh, FaceTime. And these are one-on-one classes with yours truly where we go in deep into sound therapy, deep into understanding what is sound, how sound works, how sound operates in our musical instruments and voice, and how all of those sound behaviors interact with our body and our brain and our awareness. And through this really deep exploration of sound and how it works in the world around us, a great deal of what we call sound therapy and sound healing becomes much more clear. And what I wanted to share with you, so that's Phi Sonics Academy. You can just click on Academy on the website and it'll lead you there. And we can have our own class together if you like. But what is so exciting I wanted to share with you are some of these reviews I've been getting. So I want to read uh, one or two of these reviews to you. This is from Linda Arnold. She is a musician, composer, sound therapist, and teacher. And her website is divasonic.com. D-I-V-A-S-O-N-I-C dot and she says, I am so glad I took the time this past month to study sound science and how it applies to our current field of sound healing with Thomas Orr Anderson. He has designed a brilliant inter- introductory overview one on one course, not only covering the important basics on the physics of sound, but more importantly, shedding light on the many falsehoods permeating the sound healing community. It is important to share and spread the truth, in all caps, of this work if there is any hope in it becoming a lasting medium for positive change and growth in our communities. I would recommend starting with his research and listening to his podcasts. So maybe on another occasion I'll read you another because I realize it's kind of long, but I'm just really excited about these reviews Lately, a lot of my students for these classes have been experts in their own right. People who teach courses and workshops and uh, do performances and sound baths. People that are very uh, knowledgeable and experienced sound therapists. And they're taking my class and we are going really far into some really exciting things and those classes largely inspire what i talk about here and uh yeah i just wanted to share that with you because it's really exciting and obviously because i assume that some of you out there might be interested in taking one of those classes and i would love to meet you and see you face to face through of course the virtual computer world but nevertheless see each other and really dig in deep to these topics. This is part five, wow, of a series where we are exploring topics presented in a paper I just wrote that's called Music and Life Toward a Holistic Perspective, a Note on the Theoretical Foundations of Sound Therapy. And Once again, I'll read the abstract really quickly to give an overview of the basic topic. This informal note addresses some fundamental relationships between that which we call music and that which we call life. Certain similarities are addressed, as are the inherent limitations in the definition of these terms. As music coherently bridges the objective and subjective domains of human experience, it is suggested that we investigate music as a primary resource toward a better understanding of life. And even more so than when we began the last episode, there have been enough of these episodes in this series that I can't reasonably uh, summarize what we've talked about so far. But on the last episode, we explored how we experience music we explored that not only do we have an objective experience of music but we also have a subjective experience of music and although it's quite difficult to talk about I did my best to talk about that how we experience music subjectively and somewhat reasonable sort of summary of the point of the point that I was making on the last episode was essentially that the subjective experience of music is exactly and precisely an experience of those parts of ourselves that are illuminated by the music so as we listen to music it activates various parts of ourself into our awareness. It brings parts of ourself into our awareness. Whether those parts of ourselves are physical, you know, becoming more aware of different parts of our body and the patterns of vibrations and feelings that are flowing through our body and awareness of our emotions and how we feel and our memories and the Emotional roller coaster on which we constantly ride through this short, sweet life, or whether it makes us experience, or whether it, the music leads us to experience our mind and our reason and our conception of the patterns of the universe around us. In all those cases, music is illuminating some part of ourself. And that part of ourself that we experience when we hear the music. And so it's a beautiful thing to recognize that we literally experience music as ourself. <clears throat> and we, of course, experience music objectively. We can name different features of music and categorize it and compare it and all the things that we might call objective, things that we can, you know, better talk about and put in charts and communicate with each other, some sort of external shared experience of music, as opposed to that internal, private, subjective experience. It's not unusual for us to experience things both subjectively and objectively. In fact, it might be the case essentially that we're always experiencing everything somewhat subjectively and objectively simultaneously. That these two things aren't really divided, and it's not a special feature of music that we experience it in those two ways. That that's generally a way of categorizing everything that we experience. Every experience we have can be, in some sense, divided into the objective aspects, and the subjective aspects. So that's not special about music. However, there is something very special about music. There's a lot of very special things about music, but one in particular that I want to bring to attention here is that, let's uh, consider something other than music. Say, for example, a traffic pattern say you're in your car and you're driving you know to work in the morning in the city and you're involved in some sort of traffic pattern i won't say what it is but you at some given time on your journey are involved in a traffic pattern perhaps people you know automatically picture a traffic jam because that's sort of the most drastic No, unfortunately, it's not the most drastic. But that's a somewhat drastic and provoking, emotionally provoking traffic experience. But there's all sorts of other traffic experiences. You know, we slow down harmoniously with the other cars at a light and stop. And then when it turns green, we go or whatever. There's an infinite supply of possible traffic experiences or traffic situations that we might find ourselves in. So for any of those traffic situations, we can divide our experience into subjective and objective. The objective features would be those features that other people that are there can identify and they'll match. So, you know, There's a certain order that the cars are in at a stop sign, you know, this car is in front of that car, in front of that other car. And there's this pattern of which car is in front of which, and each person there can recognize that pattern and identify it, and potentially they could compare notes, and within, you know, reasonable limits, they'll have the same answers. So if everyone were paying very close attention to which car was which and what order they were in, then as long as everyone was honest and you know their eyes were working and they had the necessary tools available to determine the order of the cars sufficiently, everybody's gonna produce pretty much the same answer. So we come to believe that there is a right answer, that it actually exists that those cars are actually in reality in that particular order because everybody comes up with the same answer. So we kind of call that real generally, and that's what we call objective. And then simultaneously in that traffic situation with those cars lined up at the stop sign, each person in each car is having some sort of experience. And those experiences that each person is, that those people are having, those experiences are private and difficult to describe. And in many, many ways, they differ from each other. And very, very strongly does each subjective person's experience differ. So in one car, somebody's upset because, you know, they're late for work. In the other car, someone's favorite song came on and they're really excited and they're thinking about their girlfriend or something. So in each car, the subjective experiences of the traffic situation are very different. And we have come to, in the modern age, be accidentally fooled into letting ourselves believe that for some reason the objective features of what's happening are more real than the subjective features we sort of even though at the moment while you're in your car singing to your favorite song feeling super happy and enjoying the beautiful day and excited to go to the park during that moment you know very well that your experience is very real you're really feeling those things, really having that subjective experience. But then later, when we talk about it, we all kind of pretend that, you know, the subjective stuff, that's not really, you know, real. It's the objective stuff. You know, my brain waves were in a certain uh, frequency, and my cells were, you know, oscillating in various patterns, and You know, my blood sugar was like this and I had a certain level of serotonin and my hormones and all these objective features that we imagine some super perfect scientific institute could describe. In daily life, we all kind of get together and pretend that that's what's real and that our subjective experience, that real actual direct experience we were having, We kind of pretend well that's not real what's real is all those brain waves and all those objective features and that's a trick we are going to have to get past this delusion that we collectively unspokenly agree upon that that which we call objective is more real than that which we call subjective that delusion is optional. We don't have to continue believing it. First of all, it's just not true. The subjective experience is very real, and potentially, in some sense, more real than the objective. So who knows what the answer to that question, more real, less real, or what that really means? That's irrelevant. What's relevant is that pretending that those things which are subjective, that are subjective experiences, pretending those are less real than objective experiences, that's optional. Just because your science teacher and uh, whoever you're watching on television or the newspaper or your influential older sibling or your parents or whoever it is, just because those people seemed to insinuate over and over and over and over again throughout your life that the subjective aspect of life is less real, just because we're being bombarded with that insinuation does not mean that it's correct nor does it mean that we are required to accept it. We are allowed to acknowledge something that is way more true. We are allowed to acknowledge that our subjective experience is at least just as real as that which we call objective. We're totally allowed to you dear listener you have the option investigate the facts investigate the actual facts pay attention to your actual experience and notice that private aspect of your experience that we call subjective and notice that it is there it's real or not You can pretend that it's not really happening. And that is what we are collectively doing as a culture. And it is not an innocent mistake. Or it's not a mistake without dangers. It is a mistake that has tremendous, global, long-lasting repercussions. Because that mistake detaches us from the essential life that permeates all of the universe around us, the fundamental beauty of interconnection that is in everything. And therefore, by ignoring, by pretending that the subjective is less real, diminishing its importance as a fundamental feature of reality, we give ourselves the ability to proceed destroying the very life that is around us, supporting us. It is a very big deal. So this delusion is optional. That's the good news. And we can start helping other people understand it. In many different ways, I'm making my effort through this podcast. But more importantly, I invite you not to listen to what I'm saying and take it as, you know, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. He's really thought about this a whole lot. So I'm just gonna, you know, I don't have time to think that much. I don't know how he thinks all the time like that, but I don't really have time. And he sounds like a nice, honest guy who's really thought about it and he's got a pretty good education. So I'm going to take his word for it. That I hope you do not do. That is a essential reversal of the thing that I'm suggesting. That's essentially following the very same delusion that I'm suggesting You accept your option to abandon it, to abandon this delusion where we pretend that objective is more real, more fundamental, and more important than subjective. So that was my plea to you to pay attention to this aspect of yourself because as you do, other people will simultaneously. Humanity is a self-organizing system. So just as you are making that choice, simultaneously shall be others. Just like when water cools, and when it cools and cools and cools, and suddenly when it reaches the freezing point, the zero degrees or however you like to label the freezing point of water just when it reaches spontaneously throughout the water all over the place, self organize beautiful crystals all over the place in every direction, simultaneously, spontaneously self-organization of the most beautiful essential harmony the crystals of water. Likewise, as you make these choices, as you choose to let yourself be freed from an optional delusion that has been bestowed upon all of us, as you choose that simultaneously, likewise, all around the world, others shall as well. Hopefully the listeners will forgive me if I got a little bit preachy there. Um, I might sometimes seem a bit detached in my attitudes, somewhat uh, classically scientific, but I definitely have a soft spot for Mother Nature. When consideration of an issue brings to my attention... The beautiful nature that I love so much and the human decisions that lead to endangerment of these forests, the water, the air, the beautiful animals, creatures, insects, the microbiome, the human decisions that are optional, that lead to us collectively endangering these most beautiful things upon which our very lives rely. That's a soft spot for me. So basically I got pretty emotional there uh, thinking about that. So hopefully you'll forgive me. Perhaps you even understand my feelings on that matter. So we discussed how we experience music subjectively and objectively simultaneously and there's a very special feature of music in that context being that there is a very clear relationship between the objective features of music and the subjective features of music in the example of the traffic pattern Our subjective experiences of the traffic pattern and our objective experiences of the traffic pattern are very different. And also, our individual subjective experiences are very different from each other. As we talked about, you know, one person is experiencing the traffic in a really happy way, somebody in a sad way, someone in a nostalgic way all our subjective experiences of that same traffic pattern are very different. And in most things that we experience in life, that is really common. When we experience most things, our various subjective experiences of those things differ very much from each other, although our objective experiences are very highly correlated. Music Is very much different in that context. The subjective experiences of music of different people are very much related and they are very much related to our objective experience. So there's a very special thing about music that there is a distinct connection between the objective features, for example, uh, a certain harmony pattern, or a certain ratio of frequencies, a certain jump on the keyboard, dum dum, versus dum dum, versus dum dum, versus dum each of those intervals are objectively identifiable and they are also subjectively experienced but unlike other things that we experience. In the case of music our subjective experience and our objective experience are very much correlated. So in most experiences in life the objective and subjective experiences are somewhat disconnected And in that way, even though people have very similar objective experiences of something, they have very different subjective experiences. But in the special case of music, the objective experience and the subjective experiences are correlated. And so our individual experiences of the same music are also correlated. And this is that very special feature of music that it bridges the subjective and objective domains. It harnesses the boundary between those two domains. And so science is that field of human endeavor focused on the objective, but we're facing this dilemma where... Science has to, in some sense, acknowledge and accommodate the subjective. And music is a bridge, as we can see. This is a beautiful situation. And so that leads us to the next section, which is called similarities, music and life it is essentially an exploration of the similarities between that which we call music and that which we call life. What is that fundamental experience that each conscious being has? What do we call it? In popular speech, we simply call it life. That's life, so they say. Let us now apparently step into an abyss. Let us seemingly stray from our somewhat logical progression. Let us temporarily appear to submerge ourselves in poetry and philosophy, for we have arrived at the fundamental suggestion of this presentation. Here, and with no reservations, I suggest that genuinely, and precisely, music is life. This statement may at first seem vague, naive, or simply poetic, but perhaps if we consider it a bit more deeply, we may in fact find therein some useful direction toward our objectives. Let us look more closely at some identifiable qualities of that which we call life, and of that which we call music. What are some inherent features of those two realms of human experience? Particularly, what are some fundamental features shared by both music and life? Let us first keep our considerations quite broad and simply notice that neither music nor life is well defined. Scientists have endeavored for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, to adequately define life, and thus far, to no avail. Likewise, music has throughout the ages never been adequately defined. Essentially, we learn what others mean by life, or music, through initiation, through direct experience. We surely experience both music and life but we cannot rightly say what they are. In other words, both music and life are not amenable to comprehensive symbolic description. Such a situation is more familiar and acceptable than we might first think. For example, consider the taste of a strawberry. Few doubt the reality of the taste, but none can adequately describe it. One simply has to taste for themselves. One has to be initiated. Likewise, we all directly experience that thing called life. We're all living now and feel what that means, although we cannot rightly say. We also notice things that seem to be more living or less living, and likewise cannot adequately clarify what do we mean by that. And much like life, we also directly experience that thing called music. We notice arrangements of sounds which seem more musical or less so. We directly experience music but cannot adequately describe what it is that we experience. But as we surely can experience both life and music in a very real sense, might we not reasonably suppose that they could be adequately defined? As has been continually reported by those great minds who have devoted considerable amount of their attention to these questions, those certain geniuses who have attempted to define life or attempted to define music. Any such attempts inevitably meet a distinct roadblock. That roadblock is in fact quite simple. It is simply that neither music nor life are amenable to comprehensive definition. It is as simple as that. We cannot adequately define them because they cannot be adequately defined. Assuming this to be so, we must then ask, why is that? Why can neither life nor music be adequately defined, although we are so very familiar with them both? Perhaps we can look to another realm of human consideration for direction in this matter let us look to music. That is actually the part in the paper that leads into chaos theory. And in fact, as I read it to you, I just changed the last sentence. I said, let us look to music instead of let us look to the field of chaos theory, which is what the paper says. But in the last episode, we discussed chaos theory. And so I switched it to follow the flow of the podcast better. In case you happen to be reading along or uh, you know examining the paper at the same time that you are listening to this series, I just wanted to clarify that. So this next section is called Comparing Music and Life. And as we're getting close to the end of the paper and the end of this particular exploration, I'm actually going to read to you again. I believe that the way it is written does a pretty good job, and perhaps better than I could do off the top of my head right now. Let us ask ourselves, roughly, in the broadest sense, what is music? Music is arrangements of sound and time, but music is not any patterns of sound arranged in time. Only specific sorts of arrangements do we deem to be musical. And music theory, as it has developed all over the world for the last few millennia, has done an excellent job organizing and categorizing those patterns which we deem to be musical. Now, in a similarly rough and general sense, let us ask, what is life? Life can, in a very similar wake, be conceived as arrangements of mass, energy, molecules, and whatnot, arranged in space-time. But just as music is not any arrangements of sounds in time, but only specific sorts of arrangements... Likewise, life is not any arrangements of energy, mass, molecules, and whatnot in space-time. Only certain arrangements do we deem to be alive. And biology has done a great deal to organize and categorize those arrangements that we deem to be living. So in this context, we find another similarity between music and life music being certain sorts of arrangements of vibratory phenomena in time, and life being certain sorts of arrangements of vibratory phenomena in space-time. Just as the shared features of undefinability don't necessarily indicate the equality of music in life, likewise this second shared feature does not necessarily indicate Nevertheless, it does nothing to undermine such a conception. So now let us proceed to consider a third similarity between music and life. Particularly, let us consider their relativistic nature, or their inherent observer dependence. Observer dependence in music, given some particular arrangements of sounds and time, one person may deem that arrangement to be musical. Another may deem it not to be so. For example, the sound of raindrops falling on buckets outside our house may sound very much unmusical to the common listener. But to a trained musician, whose ears are attuned to the musical intervals and the overtones, and whose body is attuned to the rhythmic patterns, such as those heard in those drip-drop sounds, it may be music indeed. These same arrangements of sound are deemed to be music by one listener, but are not music to another. Observer-dependent it is. dependence in life, Although the authors of your 8th grade biology book may suggest otherwise, life itself is likewise an observer-dependent feature of the universe. For example, one person may see life itself in the patterns of fossil-laden limestone road cuts. A trained geologist certainly sees the Earth's crust as a living form, perhaps not conscious nor self-aware nor possessing a human-like intelligence, but nevertheless in a very real sense, living. And yet another observer can look at the same stone and see therein no life at all. Thus, with honest reflection, we see that both music and life are inherently observer-dependent we could certainly become distraught at this unshakable presence of observer dependence, or perhaps we could comfortably acknowledge it and allow this feature to penetrate our conceptual frameworks. Let us be reasonable and recognize clearly that as we move toward including observation and the observer as fundamental in our frameworks, we will necessarily encounter cases of observer dependence over and over. In other words, we expect to be continually required to accept observer dependence as fundamental, so long as we are seeking to include the observer in our frameworks so the closing remarks we have addressed three simple similarities between that which we call music and that which we call life for now i leave it to the listener to consider other similarities genuine consideration of the matter combined with a slight loosening of our habitual conceptions reveals that the similarities are both broad and suggestive. Perhaps it is that we may adjust our conceptions of music and adjust our conceptions of life only slightly and find that not only are they similar, but that they are in fact two different views of one fundamental feature of the universe. Much as a sine wave is a projection of a circle in action like a slinky, perhaps music is a projection of life itself, projected into the dimensions comprised of sounds in time, frequency, amplitude, time. That which we call life is organized arrays of vibrations in space-time all cooperating as one unified whole. Likewise, in music we find organized arrays of vibrations cooperating as a whole in time. Essentially, it may be that what we call music is a projection of that which we call life, projected somewhat like a shadow into those dimensions in which we perceive sound. It is to this consideration that I herein point the listener. In closing, I suggest that we consider those central features of music that operate both in the objective realm of vibrations in space and time as geometry and number, and also in the subjective realm of feelings, emotions, thoughts, and memories. I suggest that we deeply consider those central features of music which transcend the division between objective and subjective domains. Particularly, let us look toward rhythm, melody, and harmony and consider those very same features of music, but in the context of that which we call life. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this series, Music and Life Toward a Holistic Perspective A Note on the Theoretical Foundations of Sound Therapy. If you enjoyed this edition, I hope that you check out the first four editions in this series, Music and Life, and perhaps the other episodes of this podcast. I am your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, and this is the podcast, The Art and science of sound healing. Until next time, be blessed and be well.